pray together. Our great God, we pray that our worship was pleasing to you, Lord, and we pray that as we enter this time of preached word, that you would that you would give us attentiveness to your word. God, we pray that you would give Pastor David the boldness to, to proclaim your word, and Lord, that that your words would be remembered and would be effectual in changing the lives of your people on this your day. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You turn with me, please, to Mark's gospel once again. Lord willing, we will come to the end of chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel today. Get some air. We find here in the last half of Mark's Gospel, we, we've, we've watched through the, the words of Christ, or through the words of Mark here, we've, we've watched as our Lord Jesus has demonstrated his kingly rule. He comes on the scene announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he gives tangible, visible evidence of that kingdom's power and authority breaking in. As we look here today, we find, in a sense, three vignettes, three little groups of stories, or three events that happen back to back to back on a Sabbath day. In our last sermon, we saw Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he's teaching as one who has a unique authority. And then he also casts a demon out of an oppressed man. And the response of the people is to marvel and to say among themselves, who is this? Who could do such a thing? Well, we pick up here in verse 29 with Mark's characteristic language and immediately. So this tells us this is a continuation of that same day's events, having been at the synagogue, and now they travel the short distance, we find out, to Peter and, and Andrew's house, in which we find Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. And so what we see in this text is him, him healing Peter's mother-in-law. Then we see him healing a great mass of people and casting out many demons, and then Mark keys in on an event at the end of the chapter in the healing of a leper. And so these things happen in rapid succession, and we want to know, what do they, what do these things have in common? How are these events that take place chronologically together, but otherwise have some similarities and dissimilarities, what do we learn from this? Well, the title of the sermon today is Behold the Healer of Men. One of the things that characterizes the kingdom of God, especially as the kingdom of God breaks forth into this age, is the healing of men. And what we're going to see is that the, the tangible physical healing is not the end of the story. That simply stands as a, it's, it's, it happened, it's, it's historical truth, and also it serves as a metaphor for something far more substantial, a much greater healing, an eternal healing, that's, that's beginning to take place in ways that the Old Covenant couldn't produce. So as we read together here, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 29, 
Let's observe three things about our Lord Jesus that we see here. We behold him. We behold the healer of men. Because our temptation might be to look at the leper and to spend our time focusing on him or to spend our time focusing on Peter's mother-in-law or to spend our time focusing upon all these others that he has healed and from whom he has cast out demons. But our focus is upon the king who has come and who presents himself as the healer of men. So that's the title of the sermon, Behold, the Healer of Men. And notice three things that are on display here. First, and we've seen this already, and we'll see it again and again and again throughout Mark's gospel, we see the power of this healer on display. And I don't often use alliteration, but it just happened this time. So it makes it easy for those of you who are note-takers, or maybe easier for those who are not note-takers, you can remember this pretty easily. We look at the power, the pity, and the prayer of our Savior. We see the power and the pity and the prayer of our Savior. So let's read together verses 29 to follow and following. This is the Word of God. And immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and touched him, and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him, and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Notice in the first place, behold the power of our healer. Behold the power of the healer of men. And the power here is displayed in at least three ways. One, we see this in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Look at the very first paragraph that we read. This is after being in the synagogue and teaching. Immediately, we're told that he leaves the synagogue, he enters the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John accompanying them. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, now, Dr. Luke, in his gospel, adds that it was a severe fever. She was very sick. Whether this was potentially fatal, we, we don't know, but we know she was very sick. 
And any of you who have run a high fever, you know what that's like. You, you, it's almost like you're Velcroed to the bed. No matter how much you might will to move, it's very difficult to do anything. And your whole body aches. And there was no ibuprofen. There were no ice baths. There were no, no treatments for this dear woman other than to let it run its course. But notice what Jesus does. He takes her by the hand and lifts her up, and the fever's just gone. And, and the evidence of this is that she gets up immediately and begins to serve. And, and Peter's not here, or Mark is not making a social or theological point here. He's, he's demonstrating the power of Christ as the healer, because you know, even when your fever has broken, it's not as if immediately you're wanting to jump up and do a lot. It takes, it takes the life out of you, doesn't it? You end up being dehydrated and weak and lethargic and... Immediately, she's up and serving, demonstrating this wasn't just the natural course of things where her fever broke. This was the supernatural power of God at work. Now notice in verse 32, at evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by the demons. Now it's, it's significant that Mark tells us that this was at sundown. Why is that significant? because it tells us the Sabbath has come to an end. Ordinarily, the Jews would observe the Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And so now that the Sabbath has come to an end, people are now moving about and traveling again. And because of that, they're able to bring all of those who are sick, those who are demon-oppressed, and they come, they bring bring them to Jesus. Mark gives a little bit of hyperbole. The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. We see the power. We see the authority here. Mark doesn't give us any details on how he did it. Throughout the Gospels, we have various accounts of how Jesus healed people. Sometimes it was a touch. Sometimes it was a word. Sometimes it was remote. He wasn't even present and said, your child is well. Other times he made mud out of spit and rubbed it on someone's eyes. There are various ways in which he healed. Here we're not told, but we're told that he healed. We see his power and authority. We see even his authority to command demons, not even to speak. Because they knew who he was, and it was not yet time to declare himself openly as the Messiah. Mark is setting the table once again in these narratives by demonstrating to us by both the words and the deeds of the Lord Jesus, that that he has the power and authority of the kingdom of God, and that that kingdom power will triumph over the kingdom of darkness. The the, the war, the battle, is not in doubt. The end is not left uncertain. And Jesus is demonstrating his power, even in these early stages of his ministry, over the powers of darkness, even over all of the physical manifestations of sickness. Sometimes we don't want to think about it this way, but all illness, all suffering, all disease is a consequence of sin. Now, I don't mean by that that there's a one-to-one correlation, that because this person committed this particular sin, that there is, there's illness. I'm not saying that. That can be true, but that's not necessarily true. But what is necessarily true is that our corruption in Adam Our original sin, the sinful condition of humanity, is the source of all suffering in this world. 
we can look at Adam and Eve in the garden in a state of innocency. There was no, there was no illness. There was no disease. That, all of those things are the product of the fall. But here, the kingdom of God is breaking in upon the kingdom of this world. This dark age is coming to a close through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke, quoting Jesus, makes a very explicit connection between the casting out of demons and the presence of the kingdom of God. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 11. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, Jesus himself declares that this is an aspect, this is a feature, this is a forerunner, this is a sign of the kingdom of God, that his authority over unclean spirits was absolute. It wasn't by his outstretched arm or by his mighty hand even, but Jesus says it's by the mere finger of God that demons are cast out, that the powers of darkness are vanquished and defeated. Such is the power and authority of the healer of men. And so we're going to see over and over again in Mark's gospel as we unfold the chapters ahead of us that there's this constant theme of conflict. It's it's almost as every page. We we find Jesus in conflict with demons, with with civil authorities, with the Jewish authorities, with the stubborn hearts of his own disciples. There's a conflict all the time. And it appears to be, just on its surface, just simply a religious conflict. That this is just simply a conflict between those Jews who wanted things a certain way and this new rabbi who's teaching a different way. But we have to be willing to probe deeper than that and recognize what the Scriptures actually teach to us. The Scriptures teach us the conflict is much, much deeper. It's a conflict involving Jesus overcoming the powers of hell itself. There's nothing short of a cosmic battle taking place. So even just in a few short verses where where Mark records for us the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the healing of many and casting out diseases, the healing of this leper... This is a demonstration of kingdom power that's broken into this age. And the Apostle Paul would later say, and rightly so, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers, against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we're often tempted to think in very secular terms, don't we? We're often tempted to think in very materialistic ways. Even as as Christians, we can forget, as we focus very very narrowly on the battles that we face in our our workplaces, in our homes, with physical illness and and injury and disease, when, when we watch family members suffer with illness and disease, when when we see the, the, the economic and political difficulties of our day, when we see the social ills of our day, we we are often tempted to think like pagans there, don't we? We're tempted to think in very secular, very materialistic ways. And, and, And our text today reminds us that we need a power brought to bear in these circumstances that is far greater than anything humans can possess or produce. We need the power of Christ. Notice also... When the leper comes to him, and I'll say more about the leper in a few moments, but the leper comes to him in verse 40, imploring him and kneeling. Look what he says. If you will, you can make me clean. 
Even this leper understood Jesus had the power to do this. The question wasn't ability, it wasn't power, it wasn't authority. The question was willing. And Jesus, of course, answers in the affirmative, I, I will, I am willing, be clean. There's no hint of doubt in this poor leper as he comes and asks for Jesus to heal him. He basically says, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. A 19th century Presbyterian pastor and scholar by the name of Melanchthon Jacobus says this. He says, this showed in a a confidence in Christ's ability, in his sovereign power, and with this faith, though yet in doubt about his willingness, the leper cast himself upon the mercy of Christ. His coming and casting himself upon the Savior was evidence of some faith in that willingness. Believing in his prerogative, the leper would test his regard for his own case. No sinner should wait for more faith, but should come to Christ at once as he is. Isn't that good? And saints, that's a word not only to the unbeliever, but to those of you who are in Christ. Those of you who are in Christ who recognize the sin that remains. Don't wait for more faith to come. Don't wait for something else to happen, to come to Christ. Behold the healer of men. Behold his power to heal you, to cleanse you, to deliver you. That's the central issue for Mark, the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Behold the power of the healer. Now, why is this important for Mark to demonstrate the power of Jesus? Well, it's because no matter how willing he might be, no matter how how noble or good or moral he might be, if he doesn't have the power of the Son of God, he is no Savior. He is no Redeemer. He is no Deliverer, and he ultimately is no Healer. But we find here that he is mighty in power. He is mighty in authority. But not only that, as the leper discovers, he is willing to save. He is eager to cleanse. He wants to make whole. Notice that in the second place, behold the pity of the healer of men. Because it would be one thing to have a God who is almighty, who is powerful, but who is not good, who is not compassionate, who is not gentle to the lost. But we, have, we serve a king who is not only mighty to save, not only does he have the power of the kingdom, but he demonstrates that power in compassion and pity towards those who are broken, those who are hurting, those who are diseased and afflicted, both physically and spiritually. Notice here in the first place, as we, as we see here, as we go back through the narrative again, as we go back through these vignettes again, and we see here the, the pity of this healer. Here he is on the Sabbath day. He's been at the synagogue, he's been teaching all day, and now he retreats with his disciples to a private place. Now, I have some sympathy with our Lord on this, this point. You've, you've been teaching. He's physically exhausted. And as he comes into the house immediately, he's confronted with a problem. Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. And we see here, not only he could have rested comfortably could have sat back in his recliner. They didn't have lazy boys back then, but imagine that scenario. He sits back comfortably in his recliner. He's got a refreshing beverage with him, and he says, just by word, she's all better now. Don't worry about it. We know he had that capability. 
He demonstrates that repeatedly throughout the Gospels. Just by his word, even just by his thought, he could have healed her. But what does he do? Look at the text. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Now, for most of us here in the 21st century, this is not as shocking to us as it would have been to a Jew in the first century. No conservative rabbi would ever have touched a woman that was not his wife. He would not have extended a hand to touch her in this way. This would have been considered socially unacceptable, if not defiling. And we see here the pity of the Lord Jesus Christ to honor this woman, to show her the pity and the respect that she is due right along with the men. He did not exclude her. He did not heal her at arm's length, so to speak. He engaged directly, personally, tangibly with this dear sister. So when Jesus would later say, because his own family thought he'd gone mad, and, and he's pressed in upon all those who were seeking to, to his, his healing grace, and they would say, they would send the messengers in, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. you remember what Jesus said? Behold, these are my mothers and brothers and sisters. And he meant it. And we see the kind of pity that he takes on one that he considers his own. Now we also see in the healing of all of these, again, it's been a long day. The sun has gone down, and Jesus could very easily have turned them away and said, make them come back tomorrow. But he doesn't do that. Verse 32, that very evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, the whole city. I mean, can you imagine this scene? Probably maybe just outside the, the doors of the home of Simon and Andrew. And he heals them all. He shows a pity on them. He shows a tenderness and a compassion to those who were suffering physically and spiritually. And then, of course, we see mightily in the, in the narration of the leper. The leper comes to him. And again, this is one of those things that we, I think we can imagine this, and I think we can have, create some categories in our minds, but when was the last time you dealt personally with a leper? I never have. But, but it's hard for us to imagine the kind of social stigma. We could probably think of other examples. Um, maybe someone with, with a contagious disease, something particularly with a social stigma like maybe AIDS or something like that, uh, someone who's suffering the, 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 the skin ailments and the rotten teeth of a meth addiction. And here's this poor pitiful creature that just presumptuously, boldly comes up to Jesus. Lepers were required socially to yell out in advance when they're coming, unclean, unclean, unclean. They were socially isolated. Think of this. It probably had been years since this man experienced human touch. And once again, Jesus could have healed him from a distance. I'll tell you what, you stay over there, and you're healed. Go talk to the priest. Go do what Moses commanded you to do. But you don't need to come any closer to me. I am an important rabbi, after, after all, trying to begin my public ministry. The last thing I need is a ceremonial defilement and the uncleanness of a leper on my record. This is not what he does, is it? See, the, the lepers were considered unhealable. 
They were considered the most unclean of unclean people. The, the, the social stigma just screamed out that it was a, a sign to them in the, in the way the Jews thought. It was a sign of God's judgment or a curse. Jesus touches the untouchable. He touches one who had been bereft of any human touch for probably years. So behold, saints, the pity, the compassion, the tenderness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, leprosy was an actual literal disease or maybe a category of diseases, but it points us to something deeper. Throughout the scriptures, leprosy stands as a metaphor for sin. It stands as a metaphor for sin. It was an actual, literal, historical disease, and also it pointed to a spiritual reality. Again, I'm not making the, the, the one-to-one correlation, you know this, that leprosy was the direct effect of some particular sin, but it pointed everyone who saw a leper to the spiritual reality of uncleanness. And think about this. Just as I thought about this, some, some, some parallels came to mind between sin and leprosy. It really is a fitting. It's, it's an apt illustration of sin. Because sin often begins very small, almost imperceptibly, and then it takes over the whole body, just as leprosy does. It's, it's progressive in its effects. You don't, you don't have a full-blown case of leprosy the very first day. It's progressive in its effect, or maybe digressive in its effects. It, it desensitizes the body. Leprosy ends up being a nerve condition it, it, so that lepers would not even know if they you know, lost a finger or something sometimes in severe cases. They could, they could have digits dropping off and they wouldn't know it because their nerves have been so damaged. Sin does this to us, doesn't it? It desensitizes us. It sears our consciences. It makes us less sensitive to the needs of others to the presence and work of the Spirit among us. It makes us less eager for the things of God. It separates us from God. Just as leprosy separated a man or separated a woman from human interaction, sin separates us from God. It alienates us from other men because sin is ultimately self-centered. And so when we engage habitually in sin, it, it alienates us from others. Sin, like leprosy, is incurable. Without an outside cleansing, without an outside work, it's terminal. And also, just as leprosy and sin both, there was a mistaken understanding or mistaken belief that it was contagious, that you could just catch leprosy in the air. Sometimes... Certain strands of Christianity, sin is treated that way. Like it's an airborne pathogen. That if you're near a sinner, you're going to catch it. So there's a number of, of things that, that help us to see that, that leprosy is, is, a, is a type. It's a metaphor for sin. In fact, this was understood in the, even the Old Testament that only God can cure leprosy. Remember the story of Naaman, the Syrian king? In 2 Kings 5, we read this account regarding Naaman, who had leprosy. And he brought the letter from the king of Syria to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to, to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, 
Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Do you hear what the king of Israel is saying? Only God can cure leprosy, and this Syrian king expects me to help him? He goes on, only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha understood that God would heal and that he would use the means of his own prophet for that healing. But there was no mistake. Both pagan and Jew understood that only God could heal leprosy. So that's the other significant aspect of this. When we see the pity of, of, of our healer on display here, this is God who is doing the healing. This is not a mere human healing. And this is the message of the gospel. With one touch, with one word from the Lord Jesus Christ, the incurable sinner is cleansed. The corrupted heart is wiped clean. In Jesus Christ, there is now much more than a prophet in Israel. There is a healer of men present. In Hebrews 9, we... we, The apostle here puts a very fine point on this in Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Well, listen to this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Saints, behold the healer of men. Friends, if you are outside of Christ, you need to understand something very clearly from the Scriptures. Here we have a picture of a leper, a man who, even at a distance, you would have been able to tell by the open sores on his body that this man was in trouble. This man was in a bad way. But if you are outside of Christ, spiritually speaking, you are far worse off than the leper. Every bit is incurable. Every bit is separated from God and man. Every bet is focused on your own condition, and there is only one remedy. But we have on the authority of the Scriptures, from the authority of the Word of God, a declaration that Christ has come as the healer of men, and he is able to do what nothing in the Old Testament could accomplish, nothing from the blood of bulls or goats, nothing in the sacrificial system, nothing in keeping the law, nothing in keeping every jot and tittle would ever save you from that which most afflicted you. And that's the sin that dwells within. And yet, and yet here we have a picture of the healer of men who comes, demonstrating almost typologically with the leper, it was a literal healing, but that literal physical healing pointed to a spiritual reality that was much greater and much deeper and eternal in its scope. This is what our triune God has done. God has touched man in the person of his only begotten son. So do you know when the word of God is preached to you, it is as, it is as, it can't even get the word out. It is as if 
Christ is taking you by the hand and saying, I will be cleansed. Believe this gospel. Believe in me. And I will heal you. I will cleanse you. I will pardon you. I will make you whole. And I will graft you into a community again. In fellowship first with the triune God and fellowship with, your, with the saints around you. Can there ever be a more profound touching of man than that? Christ has come in the flesh. So see, just as with the leopard, God could have designed a plan where he could redeem his people without the physical touch. But he did it. In God's perfect wisdom, he knew that the only way for us truly to be reconciled to him, to have our sins pardoned, is by one who had our flesh, who was truly God, fully God, and fully man. To bear those afflictions in his own body. See, in no other religion has God come down to man. Every other religion in the world is trying to teach man how to climb up to God. Christianity is unique. True Christianity is unique. It teaches that God descended to us, took on our flesh, and touched us. He has dwelt among sinners. So the question before you, has he touched you? Has he touched you in this way? Can you testify as the leper did? I've been cleansed. I've been healed. Do you believe today that he has a power and authority to heal you from sin from within with a single touch? This is the testimony of John in his first epistle. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Far worse than leprosy is the, is the sinful condition that afflicts us. And with the touch of the God-man, you may be healed. Have you been cleansed by the Lord Jesus? Have, have you been healed from that condition that afflicts you from birth? Have you been healed from that separation from God and man? Has its power, has its defiling influence over you been broken by the Spirit of God through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ? But I think we want to apply this even a step further. I want to press in a little bit here. Frederick Bruner makes an insightful comment about this narrative. He says, Jesus touching the leper teaches the church something too. Jesus did not heal the man six feet away or by his word alone, only that talking is credible that is preceded and accompanied by a risky, genuinely meant, and serious physical engagement. A believable ministry of the word will be accompanied by a compassionate ministry of deed. Are we willing as a church to touch the untouchable? To minister to those who are unlovely? to minister to those who seem out of the reach of the gospel? Are you willing to give a compassionate touch to a miserable sinner? Perhaps immediately your mind goes to, to one who is diseased or, or homeless or the socially outcast, and these are certainly ones to whom we, we ought to be willing. 
literally and metaphorically, to touch. But if leprosy is a symbol of sin generally, kind of follow the logic here, if leprosy is a symbol of sin generally, what happens if the miserable sinner who looks perfectly normal on the outside, but whose heart and mind and soul is as decayed as any leper. I was struck by this many years ago. We were just in God's providence simultaneously ministering to two different young women. One, outwardly, her outward form was beautiful. And she was gracious in speech. She was very nice, very kind, very soft-spoken. And she was lost and rebelling against God. And at the very same time, we were ministering to another young woman who outwardly, who had, had scarred herself and was not what the world would consider beautiful in any stretch. She would spit and cuss and hiss. And yet we were struck by the fact that both of these two young women were exactly the same. And see, sometimes we will see someone who outwardly manifests their sin, and it's easy for us to see them. It's easy for us to know. And there are others, like us, who can put on a good face, who are socially acceptable, who are you know, mild in our manners, and yet inwardly, just as leprous, just as defiled, just as unclean. So if sin, or if leprosy is a, is a symbol of sin generally, are you willing to touch that one who is either outwardly or inwardly leprous with an offer of forgiveness because of the grace that you have been shown? In Matthew 6, Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There is a mandate, there's a requirement placed upon us who have already been cleansed of our leprosy to be willing, active, even eager participants in the cleansing of someone else's leprosy. Are you willing to engage personally in the messiness of other people's lives that are broken by sin? Our Savior sets to us an example. What, it mean, what does it mean to, to touch a sinner? Again, literally or figuratively. Or, or do you wrongly believe, like people did in Jesus' day about leprosy, that, that sin is contagious? If I get near this, I'll catch whatever they got. And I can't have that on me. Or I can't have my ministry defiled because I've been seen with a leper. Do you believe that your personal involvement with someone else will somehow automatically defile you? See, sometimes we keep people at arm's length, even other believers who have sinned against us. We keep them at arm's length because I don't want anything to do with their mess. Do you know the power of Christ at work within you? I mean, have you experienced that compassion and pity that you have received? Do you imitate that pity towards other sinners? And I think that's when, when Jesus in Matthew 18 begins his instruction about how to deal with sin, 
personal sin against you? He begins with that statement, if your brother sins against you. He doesn't say if your enemy, your adversary, or a stranger, but if your brother sins against you, or your sister sins against you. You know, in, in the context of a church, we're going, to, we're going to offend each other. We're going to sin against one another. In the context of families, in, in the context of any close community, sin is going to harm one another. How do we respond when it does? Do we remember that just yesterday, I was so eat up with leprosy, I couldn't even move. And yet God has cleansed me. And how dare I withhold the same grace from another? In the life of a church, if, if, if the church acts as if sin were some sort of condition that, against which we just recoil to such a degree that we, we can't even minister to someone else, what kind of help would we be? Several years ago, I had a minor surgical procedure, and, I, and it had um, some negative side effects. And I went into the doctor because I was concerned that swelling and everything else was far worse than it was supposed to be. And as I showed him the wound, he recoiled physically. Ugh. I said, well, that doesn't inspire confidence in my doctor. <laughs> I want the doctor to say, this is bad, but we've seen this before. We can help. See, not if, but when sin happens near to you. Do you recoil like this is some shock that you, you can't imagine that sin has come into your pristine orbit? But he say, I know the healer. Behold, the healer of men is here who works in us, who works among us. Will we model that kind of tender pity of our Lord and, and touch those near to us with the healing power of the gospel? Parents, are you willing to, to touch your own children in the midst of their sinful folly? You know, sometimes as parents, aren't we tempted to just, just get away from me? I don't even want to look at you right now. And that's sin, parents. It's sin when I've done it. It's sin when you've done it. Are we willing to touch them in their weakness, in their folly? What about wives and husbands? When you find yourself sleeping next to a leper, what do you do? Do you remember that you're one too? Do you, do you actively seek to engage in that process of sanctification and growth and pursuit of holiness together as co-laborers, as partners in this? What about when it's your own parents or a fellow church member who has offended you or whom you just don't understand? Those near to you, close to you, and you realize, I've been sinned against. How do I deal with that? Will we keep those same sinners around us at arm's length or will we show them tender mercy in the name of the Lord from one leper to another? Behold the power and the pity of our Redeemer who is the Son of God. Behold him, saints. Now, I want to consider one more vital aspect of his ministry. This will be shorter because this is the, the account here is very brief, but I think it's important. Look at verse 35. We see, behold, the, the prayer of our healer, not only his power and his pity, but his prayer. Look at verse 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
So we saw the evening or the day before, it was a Sabbath day, he's in the synagogue. He heals a multitude of people of illnesses and demon possession at sundown, probably into the late hours of the evening or night. He rises very early in the morning while it was still dark. He goes to a desolated place to pray. And this is often what we see repeated in the actions of our Savior. He goes off by himself to pray. This is the briefest of accounts here, but we're going to see this repeated throughout Mark's gospel and throughout all the gospel accounts of Jesus praying. He rose early, he prays. And here, this certainly stands as an example to us. I think it's certainly an example for us to imitate, to spend time with our Lord in prayer. And it reminds us of the importance of daily prayer. But I think this is more than an example. It's more than an example. The prayer of Jesus is a demonstration of his power and pity. The very act of him getting up early and going to pray is a demonstration of his power and his pity. Now, what do I mean by that? What do you think Jesus prayed for? Well, Mark doesn't tell us here, but it's reasonable for us based on the scriptures, based on what we're told about the pattern of prayer for the Lord, from the Lord, about what things did he pray? Think about that. And I'm going to give you just just a a little bit, but I would encourage you to meditate upon this further. Because I believe it is more than just an example, it's a demonstration of his pity on an ongoing basis, on behalf of sinners. Now, we know for a fact he prayed for strength and faithfulness to complete his mission of saving people. In in Hebrews 5, for example, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission to seek and to save the lost, and Jesus lifted up prayers even with tears, that he would accomplish his task. We also know that he prayed for strength for his disciples. He prayed for them to be able to resist temptation. For example, he told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you and that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, I've I've prayed. I've prayed that you will endure temptation, that that you will, will have strength to endure this. On the cross, Jesus prayed. Luke records it this way, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's not a statement. It's a prayer. It's a request to his heavenly Father. Father, will you please forgive them? Will you make it away? And and we see the testimony of John's gospel that one of the centurions who was present there shortly after the death of Christ said, surely this is the Son of God. God was answering that prayer almost immediately. That even those involved in his execution who did not understand the ramifications of what they would do, that God would make it so they would be forgiven. Jesus is here 
in the midst of all the demands of ministry, he rises early and he goes and he prays. And I think we can say with confidence, he wasn't praying selfishly. He was praying for his disciples. His holy heart was praying for the ones he just healed. And he's praying for, for greater fruitfulness in the day ahead. And I think we see evidence of the fact that right after this, Jesus says to them as they come looking for him, he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. This is what's on his holy mind as he's praying. Lord, will you give me fruitfulness as I go and proclaim this great gospel of the kingdom? Will you draw those that you have appointed from eternity to hear and to believe them? And the next scene, here comes a leper. Jesus has already prayed for him before he even got there. Jesus has prayed for the strength of spirit to do what he was sent to do. Saints, your Redeemer, your Lord, your Healer, your faithful High Priest, at this very moment, is praying for you. He's praying for us. And I'm not making that up. When your prayers are weak, he is strong. When you neglect your duty to pray, he prays for you. When your prayers are just seem futile, his prayers are mighty. When your prayers are mixed, as they always are, as mine always are, with your own selfish desires, he perfects your prayers on your behalf. In Hebrews 7 we, we, we see a glimpse into his heavenly priestly ministry. Beginning in verse 23 of Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I wonder, do we think about this enough? That we have a divine healer, a high priest, who at any moment is praying for you. He's praying for us as a congregation. He's praying for your families. He knows what you need before you ask. And unlike our prayers, which are imperfect, which are often unfaithful, he is faithful. He perseveres when we falter. When we, when we go to sleep and fail to pray, he is the one who is up praying and calling to God. He is the God who never sleeps, who never slumbers. So not only is he his power, not only do we see his pity, but we see his prayer. We see just a glimpse here. 
just a glimpse that Mark gives to us here. But, but un, as this unfolds, you'll see the, the, the significance of the life of prayer for our Savior that continued not only in his earthly form, but even as, and especially as, the crucified, dead, buried, raised, exalted, enthroned, high priest and king and prophet is praying for us. Praying for you individually, he's praying for us as a church. Will you behold this one? Will you behold this redeemer? Behold this healer of men? And give your heart's meditation this week to his power, certainly, and also to his pity. And ask yourself, do I, do I know this pity? Have I, have I really understood the gospel? Does my conscience continue to be tormented by things that have already been cleansed from me? Am I willing to show that same kind of pity to other sinners? Those who are unregenerate and still dead in their sins, but also other sinners who are alive in Christ and yet not sanctified fully yet. Are we willing to consider our obedience in prayer, but even far more than, than that example that he gives? See his prayerful ministry to us up to this very moment. Saints, that's where our comfort is in the ministry of prayer. It's not in our own ability. We ought to pray. We ought to be obedient in those things. We ought to call upon the Lord. But it is not our obedience. It is not our faithfulness. It is His. We rest in that. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy and triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we bless you and we praise you in the name of Christ. We thank you that in Him we have a healer. one who is not ashamed to be named among us. One who is not unwilling to touch us, to heal us, to make us clean in his sight. Father, thank you for his purifying work. We do pray for those in our midst who are suffering physically, for those who are, whose bodies are hurting, we pray that as our great healer, that you would relieve their suffering and bring them comfort. If that is your will to do so, we know you're able. We pray also for the grace of perseverance, the grace of, of increased faith, even as physical suffering may wear upon a body and a mind that you would grant the grace of, of increased faith, knowing that one day we will share in the glorified perfection that our Savior has gone before us to secure. And we thank you in his name, and we pray that you would make us a people who are eager to show pity to the sinner, eager to reflect the love of our Heavenly Father demonstrated through the Son. 
We ask this in his name uh, and for his glory and our good.